We are kicking things off with a word from our sponsor. The new streaming service, Film Movement Plus, opens a world of award-winning entertainment, including some of the best films from around the globe. Among the hundreds of titles waiting for you to discover are some of the best films from 2020, including The Wild Goose Lake, Zombie Child, and more. Available on Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, as well as streaming online and on mobile, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But as a listener of Watch with Jen, Film Movement Plus will give you a 30-day free trial plus the next three months at 50% off when you use the promo code WATCHWITHJEN, all one word. Sign up today at filmmovementplus.com. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch With Jen. Well, today we have a very special guest and one of my favorite journalists, Bilga Ibiri, a film critic for publications such as LA Weekly, New York Magazine, Vulture, The New York Times, and formerly The Village Voice. Bilga is also a writer-director known for New Guy, Purse Snatcher, and The Barber of Siberia. I want to thank you so much for being here. It's a true pleasure. So how are you doing and how have you been adapting to the ongoing pandemic? Uh, First of all, thank you for having me. Um, I'm doing okay. Uh, I mean... You know, after a year of this stuff, part of me is ready for it to, I mean, I'm definitely ready for it to be over. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, I mean, if they needed me to do another year of this, <laughs> I don't know, maybe I could have. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, fully vaccinated at this point. But Oh, good. Uh, you know, yeah, no, that's great. And But I, I don't feel any sense of relief because, uh, you know, I have a yeah. 12-year-old child and you know, he's going back into in-person school on Monday, despite the fact that he is the one person in this family who is not vaccinated. Um, oh, no. So anyway, it's well, it's just kind of, I mean, the schools are, you know, they're socially distanced and they've been doing things well and he really wants to go back. Um, but, uh, you know, so it's like when you still have someone vulnerable, it's very hard to feel like, oh yeah, I can go, you know, I can go go to a movie or yeah. go out to dinner. It's just not happening yet. Yeah, no, I've gotcha. Well, I always look forward to your thoughtful pieces, especially your interviews, where you seem to inspire such honesty, heart, and humor in whoever you happen to be talking to, and the results are always surprising. Are you working on anything new? Obviously, it doesn't have to be an interview, so please don't think I'm putting you on the spot for that. (laughs) But is there anything you have coming up that you would like to tell us about? Oh, gosh. Um, Nothing big coming up that I can talk about, not because it's super secret, but because a lot of stuff I work on, I don't necessarily know exactly what shape it's going to take or, you know, when I'm going to finish, but I'm always, you know, every week I review films for Vulture. So um, you can always find me there alongside um, my colleague, Allison Wilmore and Angelica Jade Bastian and, and our many wonderful TV yes. and music and book critics. So, <laughs> yeah, wonderful. Well, when we started coming up with an idea for the episode, you had a few really terrific topic 
ideas. But as soon as you mentioned legal and courtroom movies, I basically pushed you right back to the <laughs> 90s when so many of these great films were released and when I have so many memories of seeing them because I essentially lived at the theater that whole decade. So we <laughs> added and expanded the era to the 1980s as well, because how can you not? And I'm so excited to go into these movies with you in a minute. But before we do that, what is it about these films or really the subgenre that makes them so riveting? Gosh, um, I mean, I think like I mean, I'm, I'm older than you, but I think we both kind of came up during that time when mm. these were the coin of the realm cinematically. Yeah. And um, so there were a lot of these types of films being made. Um, and, you know, what, what makes, I mean, what makes them riveting? I think what, it, what makes, I think the, the courtroom drama and then maybe more generally the legal thriller um, riveting is it's, it's a very simple structure. Mm -hmm. You can, you know, you can create, Com complexity and subtlety within it but it's a very pure form of conflict because Ew. i mean you know whenever you hear you know you talk to people who uh teach storytelling or screenwriting and they always say well you know conflict conflict is what you need you got you got a character and they want something they have a goal and they're going to get it and that's how you get conflict and there are things in, <laughs> in their way right and um Right. A courtroom drama specifically is a very pure distillation of that because it's it is a character with a very specific goal. I mean, that's what a lawyer in a courtroom is, is yeah. a person trying to achieve a sp very specific goal. And then on the other side is another person <laughs> trying to stop them from that yeah. from achieving that goal. I mean, it's it's like mathematically precise. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's just something very satisfying about courtroom drama in that sense, you know, and, and, and it, and it, and it hits all our various, uh, I don't know, I don't want to say pleasure zones. That sounds gross, but like <laughs> it, it appeals to, the, the, yeah. to us in the way that like sports appeals to us or, or, you know, war narratives, not war itself, but war narratives appeal, yeah. you know, there's this, you know, it's, it's just constant conflict and every single thing is conflict, but, Within that also, there is a, you know, there is a, a, a decorum, there are rules that must be followed. And so you have all these wonderful obstacles, um, you know, legal arcana and things like that. And mm -hmm. you have to follow these characters as they kind of maneuver their way around it and improvise. They, you know, every, every courtroom yeah. drama or every legal thriller has somebody who has to improvise at some point around no. The challenges of, of this thing but also uh, you know th there are also mysteries so many of them i mean so many of the ones yeah. we're talking about are essentially mysteries uh, you know it's like a drawing room mystery i mean in the end there is you know th there's always a secret that has yep. to be uncovered right exactly. and now that secret might be the real culprit or that secret might be why did this thing happen like in, in several cases it's like a, there was a document, <laughs> right? <laughs> there's a document that proves the thing, yes. um, right? And there's always there's always this kind of, not always, but there's often a, a, an object that has to be reclaimed or, or, or run back, which, I mean, uh, you know, you can take that right into the world of, um, 
you know, superhero movies with their elixir you know, with the magic diamonds and you got to get yeah. the orb and you got to get the box and there's the tesseract and it's in this planet and you got to go get it but like you know, courtroom dramas and and legal dramas often have that too yeah. it's, just, it's not magic but it is very often a document that explains everything so there's just a nice you know geometric mathematical precision to these types of stories where you know, there's like one piece that you need to get that, that this person needs to get that that will click into click everything else into place and allow them to achieve their goal. Um, so yeah. I think that's why the genre just in general works when done well. Yeah. Listening to you talk, I was thinking about the MacGuffin and how mm-hmm. it's like you need the, that thing which the hero is chasing or you know, in the Hitchcock movies, we didn't really need to know what it was. We just know that they need it. And in these, because logic is involved, I mean, the document will prove something and usually they'll explain it to us. So it's kind of taking the MacGuffin a little further. But I love the comparison to it as a sports game, because you can kind of see that there's a winner, there's a loser. Sometimes there's different levels. You know, did they play a good game? Yeah. Yeah. I love yeah, that. and there's strategy involved, and it is. I mean, because um, a courtroom drama um, also has a, a preordained structure, yeah. right? I mean, it has a narrative built into it. Every trial has a narrative built into it, or at least uh, from my limited experience of yeah. trials, which is only things I've seen on in movies exactly. and TV. They have a narrative structure. Yeah. Um, you know, there's the there's the opening there's the the the, the you know <laughs> the yeah. witnesses and everything and there's the interrogations and then uh you know there's the closing arguments and then there's the you know there's the, the jury comes in obviously we're simplifying a lot not all these yeah. movies they get called to... for traveling no different thing yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> no but um but it is it is it is fun to watch these things and you know, my mom is, for example, a big fan of of mysteries and legal thrillers and and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. you know, she'll she'll watch these movies and she has an idea because she's seen so many of them of like what the various rules are. Okay. Uh, and it is interesting when you watch like a real trial and you realize, oh, it's it's nothing like it is in the movies. Yeah, you know? it's so dry. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and some of these films play with that. Like, um, mm-hmm. you know, in the Rainmaker, is that great moment where the judge reminds him that he needs to ask for permission to approach the witness, which is a thing they do in every movie. And I'm sure that was there basically to say, by the way, you can't really do that in, in, in real life, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's interesting. We should probably go ahead and give a warning to listeners that this episode might include spoilers as we go into the films, both the ones we selected, which include the verdict, suspect, class action, The Pelican Brief, A Few Good Men, and The Rainmaker, as well as any others from this era that we reference or discuss along the way. It might be easiest to go chronologically here. So starting with the 1982 Sidney Lumet movie, The Verdict, which garnered five Academy Award nominations. For Best Actor, Paul Newman, Supporting Actor, James Mason, Director, Sidney Lumet, Best Picture and Adapted Screenplay, David Mamet. Speaking of David Mamet, when I researched the man for a recent in-depth episode I did with author Jordan Harper, 
I came across an interview with Lindsey Krauss, his wife at the time, who he asked to pass along a message, an extremely cocky message, I believe, for one of the producers saying he was the guy to write this script and adapt Barry Reed's novel for the big screen. It was a ballsy move, but it is one that definitely paid off because the script is what I remembered the most about the movie, along with Paul Newman's performance as an alcoholic downtrodden lawyer who accepts a medical malpractice lawsuit against a Catholic hospital and gets in a David and Goliath battle opposite slick high-powered attorney James Mason, Jack Warden, Charlotte Rampling, Milo O'Shea, and Lindsay Krauss also star in this great, gritty, compelling drama that's as much of a courtroom movie as it is a character study. So what are your thoughts on the verdict? Um, it's, 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 a, it's a wonderful movie, and it's interesting. At the time, you know, I, I remember, I mean, I guess 82, I would have been nine, I, but I remember it being in theaters. I didn't see it in theaters. I saw it on video a few years after it came out. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was it was, you know, seen as kind of this very important, very serious, um, very dramatic film. And it was a big deal at the time because I think there was a sense that Paul Newman might finally win his Oscar, which he didn't. And then several years later, he won for the color of money, as I recall. Um, So it was, you know, it was kind of like, I mean, my, my parents you know, let me watch grown up movies all the time. So, uh, you know, it wasn't one of those movies where I was like, I couldn't see it, but, um, but, it, but I did think of it as kind of, Oh yeah, this is, this is what grown ups do. They watch the verdict. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, um, and, and it is watching it over the years, you know, I, I, I love the film, but I've gained, I think more of an appreciation for, how stylized it is or not stylized, yeah. but the fact that it has, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's a very um, aesthetically sophisticated film, actually. Sidney mm-hmm. Lumet, um, while, you know, he's, I think now part of the canon uh, for many years had this reputation as kind of um I don't want to say hack because it's, I don't think people really called him a hack, but there was the sense that, you know, he wasn't necessarily a guy who was going to bring a, a, a great sense of style. You know, mm-hmm. he was basically, you gave him a good script and he filmed it with good actors and the movie would be fine, you know? Um, but having had to, you know, having revisited his films and having written about him over the years, uh, I, I, you know, it's so clear that, he was so much more than that. Yeah. He was a very, very sophisticated filmmaker. Um, And, you know, you, he wasn't a flashy filmmaker, Mm -hmm. uh, but he definitely had a a very strong sense of style and he had a very strong sense of how to approach these films. Um, One of the things I I read this interview with him, uh, I don't know if this is actually true, but he says, you know, the, the color blue only appears at one point in the film and he was trying to drain it of, and he, like he had warm colors, he had reds, he had he had you know pitch yeah. black scenes, uh-huh. but he really, you know, the color palette for that film was really important for him, uh, and and it really comes across in the film. And I'm not you know, I'm sure there's more than one instance of blue, but but it is <laughs> yeah. you know it really visually pulls you in, um, and yeah, I mean, I just I, 
I love it. And as I get older, I, I find more things to love in it, you know, because yeah. you know, you're watching this guy who's kind of this with this broken character and he's aging and everything. But I think also, um, you know, it was seen at the time as such a showcase for uh, Paul Newman. You start to get get an appreciation for like all these other actors. I mean, for Charlotte Rampling, yeah. who's doing oh my gosh. phenomenal work in this movie Amazing. in a thankless role. Very um, much. Yeah, and then James Mason, who is like James Mason. I mean, I you know. know, there's a reason why you cast James Mason in your movie. As the heavy, and, you bet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he's he's wonderful, and um, yeah, I, I I think it's a. It was interesting to 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 learn that. Lumet was not the first choice to direct this movie. Um, in fact, Mamet had written a, the script and then I think it, it had gone to a number of people. Um, and in fact, at one point, I believe uh, Robert Redford of all people uh, right. was supposed yep. to be, yeah, it was supposed to be, uh, it was supposed to play Frank. And then um, eventually um, by the time Lumet was hired, there were apparently a, whole bunch of versions of the script like mammoth's version had been kind of yeah rewritten by all sorts of other people and um and then i guess lumet uh kind of reread all the all the versions and 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 read you know mammoth's version was just like let please let's go back to this yeah this is gonna work a lot better no it's true and it's lumet and the stark realism i thought that was a really good observation about the colors because that is what you get with his movies and especially, I mean, the grit. And in this one, color is pretty washed out. You get a lot of oranges or golds and browns and some reds and um, various shades of black, white, gray, those colors. And that's basically what you're working with in the movie. So it does kind of have that Lumet thing, but it's sort mm -hmm. of a little bit heightened from the Lumet we saw in the seventies. Like it's a little more stylized. I don't want to say more mainstream, but kind of, I don't know. Um, yeah. yeah, but amazing work, amazing film. And I heard that um, Redford was supposed to be in it, but he was meeting with, uh, as he often did, Sidney Pollack and it kind of rubbed people the wrong way. And they were like, we're letting him go. So I did get a kick out of that, that they brought Paul Newman aboard. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, it's, it's, I would love, I mean, Sidney Lumet was, was a, a very um, diplomatic guy when he talked yeah. about other movies and other filmmakers and things like that. I hope somebody somewhere has like the dish on just what exactly, <laughs> like, why did they not want Sidney? I mean, Sidney Pollock, I mean, Sidney Lumet is a better director, but Sidney Pollock in 1982 yeah. was a pretty good director. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, he had, I think Tootsie was coming up. Uh, he hadn't um, quite made it yet, but um, so I, I would love... Yeah, I mean, I would love to read. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if somebody's out there working on a book about the making of the verdict. I would love to read it. <laughs> um, but the, the other thing I was going to say about Lumet's style in the film, you know, that there's that great shot at the end when the verdict is announced. That kind of, you know, it's like a crane shot uh, in a film that has that has not had a lot of character movement, uh, camera movement, and does, no. the, you know, it doesn't have certainly doesn't have many crane shots but mm -hmm. it's like you know a crane shot in the middle of a courtroom you know and look that close up on his face and it's very dramatic um and that i think symbolizes um 
not symbolizes, but 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 is a great example of what Lumet's style is because you know he's he's a he's a restrained filmmaker in certain ways. What what you see with his films is very often he doesn't necessarily use a lot of stylistic frills, but what he does is, you know, he knows exactly how to build to that moment when he can kind of go all out with style. Um, you know, early, I guess it was last year, uh, last year, maybe a year before, I can't remember. Time has ceased to yeah. have any kind of meaning or dimension to me. But uh, sometime in the last two years, I wrote the, uh, the Criterion essay for Failsafe, um, you know, which was which is one of Lumet's earlier films. And I was really struck by his use of style in that film where, you know, you wouldn't think of that being a very stylized movie, but it is. Um, and, and, you know, by the end of it, you're really kind of struck by his, use of extreme close-ups and things like that. I mean, the whole film kind of builds towards these fairly um, dramatic uses of style, but it does so, so imperceptibly, so subtly that mm -hmm. you don't walk away from that movie thinking, well, that was a very stylish movie. Um, <laughs> but later when you watch it again, you're like, oh my God, like there are choices being made in this film left and right. And they're like pretty bold choices. Um, and I think like, that's kind of how I feel about uh you know, the, the, the verdict as well. Yeah. And it punctuates so well, that big scene for Newman giving that amazing um, closing argument. It's yeah. like his To Kill a Mockingbird moment. And so it's, it's perfect for that. And I love also the end of the film because it's like he found his humanity again after being down in his luck for so long. And then the last shot of the movie he it opens and he's an alcoholic and at the end of the movie it's like he's back kind of on the road back I mean you're always in recovery but he's drinking coffee and the person calling him on the phone we already said spoiler alert yeah. is Charlotte Rampling and she is drunk and so I thought that was an interesting yeah, yeah. inversion from before so yeah. yeah and um yeah I mean he I think a lot of a lot of courtroom dramas do this, but I think this one maybe does it the best of them all, which is, you know, the the, the, the I mean, I, I'm I'm going to use a, a a term from that book, uh, "Save the Cat," which is which is a terrible book, but it does <laughs> have a, a it does coin some nice phrases for um for different parts of a conventional screenplay, which is, you know, the, the all is lost moment, right? Yes. Which usually comes near the end of, of a script when it looks like the character has completely failed, yeah. right? <laughs> and um, the all is lost moment in the verdict is basically his, his closing speech, um, yeah. which I think when I look back, I think maybe that is something not uncommon in courtroom dramas where it comes down to basically everything has fallen apart and mm -hmm. our hero basically all that's left for them is their final speech. Yep. Um, right. Which is when they're, which is when they save the thing, which is why they're the hero and not yes. anyone else. But um, I think that with what happened, what's nice about the way this is done in the verdict is the speech is not triumphant, Right. I mean, a lot of other, like I was thinking, I, I rewatched A Time to Kill uh, recently with Matthew McConaughey and his mm -hmm. all those lost moment is right at his speech. But then he gives 
a, a, a you know a banger of a speech that's like <laughs> the high point of the movie and it's really dramatic and everybody's crying and it's you know yeah you know um I, I don't know if you remember that movie but um vaguely but yeah uh, uh, <laughs> I remember but, it was but, very emotional yes yeah no it's very over the top I mean it's a <laughs> it is like the the exact opposite of the verdict in many ways <laughs> but the thing about the verdict is you know he he his all his lost moment is that speech, but it's not a triumphant speech. I mean, it's the speech of a defeated man. Yeah. He's um, just putting it all on the line. Like, yeah, we couldn't, and he's just like, yeah. you gotta be human about this. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what makes it so that, that, that's what makes the film so powerful and why that speech winds up resonating because it is really, you know, it's like, a, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's a broken man's speech. It's not, yeah. it's not like, you know, the, it's not a Hail Mary, you know, the, no. to go, keep going with the sports. It's not a Hail Mary. It's not a, you know, yeah. two outs and, and, you know, you've got one last shot at that. It's just like, it's like, he's almost giving up in the speech. That's, that's why it works so well. Yeah. I think that's what made me think of To Kill a Mockingbird, just like find your humanity. And so that's why I found it so moving and so, so true. But yeah, I know it's very compelling. As you were talking, you started in then with the sports and I was thinking, yeah, you got to lay it on and put it all <laughs> out there and, you know, come back. And I'm like, it is kind of like watching a really great game, basically. That's why we love yeah. these. But I remember reading uh, when I was doing my mammoth research, of course, I can't remember where, that he didn't originally want to have, you know, what the verdict was. And um, I think it was Lumet, who you probably know, you probably read this over the years, but Lumet was like, well, you have to know. And so like, uh, mammoth just wanted it to be like the speech. And that was, that was it. And so they had to, you know, people would have been up in arms, but yeah, it'd be interesting to know what that would have played like, but I'm glad uh, it is the way it is. Yeah. I mean, that is such a mammoth thing to, yes. to, to do. Uh, I did not know that. Um, okay. And it's, uh, I mean, it's such a, that's, I mean, mammoth is, I mean, mammoth is in many ways a huge jerk, like not, not as yeah. a person. I mean, he might be a jerk as a yeah. person, I don't know. <laughs> but, 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 but like, I, I just mean, like, I think he relishes the idea of just yeah. like subversive. Just like, yeah. Yeah. And just like, punching the audience in the face and <laughs> yes. and that's like seems like something mammoth would absolutely do is like oh yeah you can't have the verdict which yeah <laughs> i mean can you imagine that movie without the verdict it would be just like, the most depressing thing in the world i know um, yeah maybe the marriage was we don't know exactly how much we know it's in favor of the yeah but yeah maybe that was the the mediation of like no we have to have a verdict but we'll do this maybe who knows yeah 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 and I think maybe, you know, this, I think, speaks to something about um, courtroom dramas and why um, I think this maybe speaks to why we don't have as many anymore. Although this or this this past year, ironically enough, we've had a couple and, you know, Trial mm -hmm. of Chicago 7 and Mangrove. Um, but I think, you know, the um, courtroom dramas in a weird way they show you that the system works oh, even that's though interesting. Yeah, I can see that. You, I mean, th th there's cynicism built into them because it's very often 
it's not like the system works, our justice system is great. It's kind of the system worked this time, right? Yeah. Because there's always the sense that like, oh, the powerful are getting away. Mm-hmm. You know, the juries are, are, are rigged. The judge is totally favoring. Like there's all this stuff you watch and you think to yourself, oh my God, this is a horrible, you know, there's all sorts of abuses of power happening. Corporations are getting, like, all these movies that we're talking about today. You know, there's a lot of cynicism built into kind of the the premise of the movies. But in the end, you know, justice somehow, somehow prevails. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is a certain optimism. I mean, there's like general cynicism, but there is the sense, the sense of hope that no, but, 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 you know, good people can, can come together and prevail and, um, you know, you just have, you just need the right, brilliant, you know, scrappy lawyer. But, <laughs> I, and I think that maybe one of the reasons why and we the don't document. have, right, exactly. And you need to, you need to have <laughs> a special document that somebody has, you know, kept with them for the last 10 years. Um, but, uh, but I think one of the reasons why we don't see that many of these types of films, at least, is that I think we are in many ways more cynical now. And I don't think, like, I think that a movie that had, you know, a a, a verdict, a, a good verdict at the end of it, um, a happy verdict, a happy ending. I mean, I, I feel like it would almost be like laughed out of theaters nowadays. You know, I think I think it would be seen as almost fairy tale. Ironically enough, I mean, Trial of the Chicago 7, we talk about it as like, a, I mean, I, I, it's a movie I like. A lot of people don't, but I really liked it. Um, but we talk about it as, you know, a old-fashioned courtroom drama entertainment but like they lose the case yeah <laughs> that tends not to happen in court like <laughs> usually they don't lose the case no. um i mean it's like uh, you know I mean, occasionally they lose the case but this one they lose the case um so it, it is uh i think you know the idea of not showing the verdict you might be able to get away with it today uh, I don't think you would have been able to get away with it. Maybe, it, I mean, I don't know, 82, you know, yeah. tail end of the 70s, maybe you would have gotten, gotten away with it. But certainly in the night, by the time we get to the 90s, you, you know, you're like no. not having the verdict is like just, you know, yeah. not having <laughs> credits or something, you know. Exactly. It's interesting you brought that up and your fail safe um, essay. And so you, you clearly, of course, know early Lumet. Did you read? Uh, Peter Biskin's book, Seeing is Believing, the book about the 1950s movies. In it, I I have not. Okay. When I was in um, film school, I got to like design my own courses and I took, I did one about the 50s and I read this book and in it, he argues that 12 Angry Men is really about conformity. It, It doesn't really matter what's going on for justice. We think it is. But he said, really, what is going on in that movie is trying to get 12 people to agree and like kind of, you know, getting everyone to conform. And I thought, you know, it's an interesting idea. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Wow. Um, I have not read uh, Biskin on 12 Angry Men. Um, I should. I have that book, actually. Uh, I've just never. It's like my dad had it and then I took it from him. (laughs) So it's like I've had that book. It's been in, in our yeah. family for like 25 years. Or <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, it, it is, uh, you know, that film is, 
I guess in some ways it's about conformity, but um, but I don't know that I would say that maybe, you know, I haven't watched it in a couple of years. So, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, sh- I should check it out again. That would be an interesting reading of that of that mm-hmm. of that story, um, you know, and but but I but I do think that it is. I mean, it's it's a very American story in in this, which is that it's about consensus. Yeah. Right. It's about the idea that everyone kind of has to agree on this thing. But that's, true. you know, I mean, that's the nature of a jury trial, yeah, you know, of a ju- jury. And, and that is a fascinating thing. I mean, may- maybe it's because 12 Angry Men is such an iconic film. Yeah. You know, you watch these films and it's all so often, you know, there's part of you. I mean, the real drama is probably happening in the jury, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. And uh, we almost never have uh, time to kill, which is not one of the movies we're discussing today. You do see that a little bit, but that is, um, you know, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting thing to, th- to think, to think about in yeah, terms of. I don't know. I feel like yeah. Lumet was more interested in the social justice angle, but but I appreciated what he was going for. I'm not 100% on board, but I, I do need to watch it again as well. Yeah. Biskin's, yeah. you know, he's he's, yeah. he's, he's wrong as often <laughs> as he is right. Yes, so exactly. <laughs> so take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. Well, you sold me on the next film by calling it Batshit, a late <laughs> addition to the group. We're talking about director Peter Yates's 1987 movie Suspect with Cher, Dennis Quaid, Liam Neeson, Joe Montaigne, and John Mahoney. And it is Batshit indeed, but can't be fun. I knew I'd seen this one. And once it started, I felt a familiarity with images that were, you know, appearing on the screen. But I was so unprepared for the overall plot, which finds an overworked public defender, Cher, taking the case of a homeless, deaf Liam Neeson, who is arrested for the murder of a Justice Department file clerk. Weirdly, an agribusiness lobbyist played by Dennis Quaid becomes a one-man hardy boy when he gets assigned jury duty and starts investigating the case and trying to solve it alongside Cher before an inevitable romance develops. Not a lot about this movie makes sense when you try to explain it to someone or stop and think about it for more than five minutes. But I love that we still made movies this loopy for adults back then. So I found it really entertaining. What is your take on suspect? Uh, I, 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 I love it. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's, I think it's absolutely crazy. Um, and I love it for its craziness. I, I mean, it doesn't entirely make sense. <laughs> as, no. you, as you know. Um, But the, there's an interesting thing I read uh, that apparently Peter Yates said when the, I, I've never watched the, his, I've never listened to his DVD commentary, but apparently he says this in the DVD commentary, uh, which is that this film uh, was apparently a, a, a much different looking film when it was released. Uh, and then when remastering it for home video, they actually brightened up a lot of the scenes. So it sounds like it was actually not unlike the verdict visually. It was a much darker, <laughs> okay. much more moody uh, film with often with like, you know, single points of light and things like that. So now part of me is like, well, you know, one day yeah, <laughs> I'm going to convince totally somebody to show a 35 yes. print of this. Um, I, 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 I love the movie because mood, mood wise, it's actually quite somber. Um, even though the story itself is nuts. Yeah. Um, and I love, I mean, this is back when Cher was 
you know, it's, it's, it's so weird having kind of grown up in, in this period when to me, I knew Cher as an actress, right? I knew mm-hmm. Cher as a, a great actress. You know, yep. I, I was there for Silkwood and all these, you know, yeah. uh, come back to the five and dime, Jimmy Dean, um, Moonstruck, obviously. Um, and uh, that period in the eighties when Cher was one of our finest actresses and just a, 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 a powerhouse performer, yeah. um, which then kind of dissipated after a certain point. And, you know, I mean, she, obviously she had started in music and she was still doing music um, at the time, but, you know, like Cher was like racking up Oscar nominations and, you know, I mean, it, it was like a, it was like a thing. She won best actress at Cannes. I mean, yeah. um, and, and I love her performance in this film. I mean, I, I love, you know, she's this kind of working class public defender, um, overworked. Uh, you know, I, I love how so much of the film is like, she's, you know, the, they, they put her on this case and she's like, I just, I, I, I want to take my vacation Hasn't I, taken vacation a coming up. And they're like, no. And then, you know, <laughs> the way she's like constantly asking for a continuous continuance. Um, there's just a kind of, um, you know, a kind of, uh, I don't even know what the, like, a, there's a desperation to her character. This isn't, she doesn't get started on this case because she's like, a wrong is being committed here. No. She's just like, oh, it's just part of my job. Um, yeah. And, and I like that sense of, um, you know, just a person just doing their job and you get the sense she's probably not well paid. Um, you know, it's a bit like, I mean, the, the Newman character in, in the verdict is, is, is broken. I mean, he's, he's, he's a mess. She's not like that, but no. yeah, I mean, all these films have kind of, you know, a scrappy, yeah, a scrappy underdog. lawyer working against the odds, but but I like that this one is not like kind of um, she's not a newbie, she's not an alcoholic, she's not any of these. She, she is just a lawyer, just doing her job, um, and sometimes that's just that just takes a lot out of you. Um, yeah, it's also you know I, I I mean I grew up in D.C. during this time. It was interesting to see it, and they did actually a lot of movies set in D.C. aren't actually shot in D.C. and this one was shot in D.C. Oh, really? Um, cool. And the homeless crisis at the time was a big deal in DC. And, you know, they do work that in, I think, in interesting ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, it's, it's great, always great to see young Mel Gibson, who's amazing. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I mean, all the things about the, I mean, look, obviously we're talking about spoilers here. So um, you've already given the warning, but like, I mean, look the judge did it <laughs> like it turns out yeah. the judge was the guy John who Mahoney the everyone come on <laughs> yeah, John Mahoney in, who then you know shows up in Moonstruck later that year with with Cher right um yeah but same um, month it, these yeah. came out the same month <laughs> it's just amazing but, to me yeah um but yeah I mean it's uh I mean just also the the, the plot like Dennis Quaid is you know this kind of <laughs> <laughs> himbo lobbyist who you know basically like sleeps with people to get the legislation he wants yeah. and you know so he's kind of i mean but it, but it's also he's like working for other people so he's almost like a sex worker in this weird way um gigolo thing going on in this yeah one, definitely right right he's kind <laughs> of a he's kind of a gigolo basically right um and then you know and he winds up in you know her jury and decides to help her which is never quite explained other than the fact that you know 
she's share <laughs> you want to help share i mean um but it's 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 great because you know i mean that the, the scene when he actually first helps her when he calls her on the payphone yeah and, she doesn't you know, know she doesn't know who it who it is and she turns around and just like across the lobby at another payphone it's the very top of like Dennis Quaid's head <laughs> and it's just such a weird it's like a shot out of a comedy um, a bit, like it yeah. feels like a comedy at that moment. I'm like, what am I watching? Um, yeah, but, um, yeah, kind of, yeah, like a romantic comedy character. I mean, she's she's competent, she's hardworking, she's dogged. It's great to see. But you know, when she is telling the judge, like, I haven't had a vacation in two years, and mm-hmm. all these things, and she's like, I don't even have time to date. And it's like by the end of the movie, we've got a new guy, we've got a new. It's so it is. It does operate on a little bit of a rom-com level, but not at all because this movie yeah. isn't even following courtroom like uh, structure. It's just crazy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and also the, um, I mean, also the, the 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 whole thing is you know she's having an affair with a juror, yes. and um, not an affair, I guess not an affair <laughs> technically. Nobody's married, but but it's just you know she's. She's like, I could get disbarred for this. I'm like, you <laughs> will get disbarred for this. Yes. Like, this is not a, this is not a, you know, iffy, like, eh, yeah, maybe we'll let it slide this time. This is like, no, that is not a thing you do if you're a lawyer. You yeah, don't sleep with the it's crazy. I know when I looked up, because uh, I was like, this was 1987, because the first yeah. movie I remember seeing um, in the theater with actors was Moonstruck. And oh. so it's like, wow, this was probably playing down the hall. But, you know, my uh, Italian-American mother and grandmother chose Moonstruck. So we went to that <laughs> instead. But we very well could have gone to suspect. You never know. Yeah. But I did see this in the early 90s on video, but just must have completely forgotten all of the craziness that ensued. Liam Neeson is really good here. And so it was yeah. kind of cool to see him younger and a really risky role. He does not speak, obviously. So yeah, it was great seeing him. Well, and also I, he would have had a really thick Irish accent. So probably, True. but I, yeah. but, but he's, I mean, he's got some of the most expressive eyes ever. So it's perfect casting. Yeah. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, no, it's, it's, I mean, it's filled with great performances. It actually is, uh, you know, I mean, um, Fred Melamed, right. Um, yeah. It was, it, was, it was great. Uh, it was always great. Still great. Um, <laughs> but it is, uh, there's just, I don't know, there's just something about this film that feels simultaneously very realistic, very, re- very lived in, very authentic, like as mood, atmosphere. Yeah. Um, and then the story is just crazy, which is kind <laughs> of the best. I, I don't know. I feel like that's actually that's the best too, combination. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Yeah. We just don't do that anymore. It was a riot. Well, if there were ever an actor made for this genre, it's the man I think most moviegoers take for granted for his routine excellence, Gene Hackman, who shows up and does the work and brings gravitas and mischief to every role. He stars in our next movie, 1991's Class Action, from director Michael Apted, who made my favorite series of documentaries with the remarkable Up series, and also directed Coal Miner's Daughter in 1980. This film about a liberal crusading lawyer, Gene Hackman, finds him squaring off against his estranged daughter and corporate lawyer, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, in an automobile manufacturer lawsuit. 
The film is not on the level of the Up series and Coal Miner's Daughter, but it does feature outstanding performances from Hackman and Master Antonio, as well as Lawrence back in his Larry days, Fishburne, Colin Friels, Fred da- Dalton Thompson, and Donald Moffat. It's Slickly Made features cinematography by Conrad Hall and music by James Horner, and a great example of these studio legal legal thrillers, even if it's not my favorite because the character logic changes from scene to scene, but that's probably just me. So what did you think of Class Action? Um, Class Action is, you know, it's not a classic by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I, I thought of it here because I rewatched it uh, a few months ago and, you know, I don't know why I felt like seeing it. Um, you know, I mean, it's not like it popped up, you know, on Amazon or something. It's just, for some reason, I was like, I remember that movie class action. I don't <laughs> like to check that out again. I don't know why. Um, but there might've actually been some random specific reason. I don't know. Maybe somebody gotcha. mentioned Gene Hackman or something. Um, but um, I, um I remember seeing this movie on a plane the first time like I was a kid and it was, I guess maybe a couple of years after it had come out. Um, And, you know, the premise is, 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 is goofy, but I like, it's interesting that, you know, you, um, when you were summarizing the plot, um, you know, you led with Hackman, which is understandable because he's Hackman, but I think of this as her movie and then he's kind of the, you know, but it's, it's both of them, obviously. (laughs) Um, But it is like, I do feel like it's more from her point of view and about the nuisance of having this, you know, father who is, you know, a a famous crusading, um, crusading lawyer. And she's become like a corporate attorney, maybe even to spite him because you know he was, was basically thinking. absent yeah. yeah um but i in watching it again i i i gained a lot of appreciation for the economy of its script i mean the first scene in the elevator when they kind of intro- basically introduce who he is i mean there there's there's the before that this is the beginning of the movie you know we have her arguing her case and it's kind of this very dry corporate thing and there's a bunch of people around a table and then uh and then in the other room he is basically performing uh in this this like you know this this case where he's absolutely you know defending the the not defending but you know representing the the little man um and you know there are cheers coming from that room (laughs) to the the other room and it's like really annoying for the people in the the the, you know for mary's of Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio and, and her cohort. But then, you know, they're all in the elevator going up and one of her, you know, one of her coworkers, you know, tells Gene Hackman how much he admires. Yeah. Um, he, 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 he admires him. And, you know, the, the two of them, the, the, the daughter and the father don't initially say anything. They just kind of nod, but then I can't remember what the line is, but it's kind of like, Oh no, he's, he's, he's carrying something. Right. And, and, and yes. she says another grateful client and he says, no, you know, a present for your mom <laughs> or something yes. like that. Right. Yeah, um, good. yeah. And it's kind of like, I, I love that kind of economy. I mean, the other thing about courtroom dramas is bec- the nature of a trial is also great for exposition. Like you don't have to come up with bullshit reasons to explain people's motivations and what they're looking for. It's like, 
all right, <laughs> what do you want? Okay, you know, like you, you get the witness on the stand and you ask them their things. So there's a lot of just explaining of things. So it's generally easy to follow. Um, so I, I always appreciate it when people who write courtroom dramas uh, actually do kind of flex their screenwriter muscles a little bit and try and work in nuanced ways to, uh, you know, to, to kind of... Um, you know, give us that kind of exposition. Um, one thing I have since discovered, um, apparently among lawyers, uh, class action is considered one of the more authentic uh, really? portrayals of cool. um, of the legal profession. Although mm-hmm. apparently, <laughs> apparently, uh, before they shot it, they they went to you know like a legal advisor, like a technical advisor, who looked at it and said. Well, the script you have here is not a class action, so you can't call this movie class action. And apparently, I don't know, I think they revised it a little bit, but that's interesting too. Um, but yeah, apparently uh, apparently it's held in high regard by um, by lawyers, by actual lawyers. Um, but I don't know if it's because, you know, what happens in the courtroom is authentic or, you know, it does feature yeah. a lot more just kind of background and scenes at, you know, at the law offices and shows kind of the, um, you know, the internal politics of this sort of thing. So maybe, you know, maybe that's interesting to them as well. And maybe that is more authentic. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe the politics of her law firm and she's involved with a partner. She wants to become a partner and her underlings, maybe that was it. Yeah. It's definitely, she has the, the bigger role I think her character was kind of driving me nuts a little bit because um one scene you'd be like oh, okay she she hates her dad and she's got every right in this and then the next they're like buddying up and then they would um then they were sparring again so I never quite knew what was going on with them but the actors are just so good in it yeah they are they are great I mean he's fantastic Hackman mm-hmm. is so good and he is um, his ability to turn on a dime, which is interesting. I mean, you say the character dynamics in the film keep changing and they, and they do. I mean, I, I think mm-hmm. I agree with you. Um, I, I, I bought that more than you maybe just because I think um, to me, it felt like this is a situation where you might not actually know what you're going to do from True. day yeah. to day because yeah. it's like it's your dad and you love him but you resent him <laughs> you yeah know, and then your mom was, dies you know, and yeah he, yeah, he cheated thing. on your mom and he you know he wasn't yes. there for you but then like then your mom dies and you know yeah. he's alone but you know but it's like but there's i mean there's all these things going on but it's mm-hmm. it's clear she still does love him oh um, yeah but so so this back and forth and, and you know she still continues with the case i mean she's essentially setting her her herself up to lose um yeah. and it's you know it's a it's a it's a tricky situation but it what really i love is. about his performance is he's able to like he emotionally he can turn on a dime he can go from gruff and totally un you know, unresponsive to suddenly like almost psychotic or, or, you know, playful. I mean, we don't, you know, his, he has a very malleable face and I feel like we, we don't maybe notice that about Gene Hackman because he is such a kind of, you know, familiar face, but that's true. his ability to kind of go between emotional extremes. I mean, I think he's, 
I mean, it's, it's Jim Carrey-esque, you know, mm-hmm. like, <laughs> I mean, um, and, you know, he's, he's got this very plastic face, you know, that, 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 you know, the expressions on it are, are just really rich and constantly changing. And it's very, um, yeah, you, you don't always notice that with him, but, you know, watching this film again, I was like, you know, this is something that Gene Hackman is very good at and we don't give him enough credit for it. Um, and she's great too. You know, it, it's yes, yes. the story behind this film is um, apparently they, um, apparently they really wanted Julia Roberts. Oh, really? Uh, for it. Yeah. And she had, you know, she was, she was a new actress. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't think, I don't think pretty woman had come out yet. Okay. Um, and um, maybe, I don't, I don't think, you know, pretty woman had not come out yet. She, they had seen mystic pizza. Um, okay. And so they wanted Julia Roberts. And I believe Joe Roth, who was head of 20th century Fox um I was like, well, you know, why do you want Julia Roberts? Um, and then I guess yeah. one day he came back to them and he said, I just saw a screening of a movie. It's going to be the biggest movie of all time. And the actress in it is going to become the biggest actress of all time. And the movie is The Abyss and her name I is Mary Elizabeth Antonio. Yes. And <laughs> apparently he said, we're going to ask Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio. And if she says no, then you can have Julia Roberts. And they apparently set a, set a, you know, a, a date and a time by which Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio had to say yes or no. Uh-oh. And apparently like five minutes before the deadline, she said yes. And so the <laughs> thing, ah, we were five minutes away from having to, and apparently Julia Roberts later found out about this and was very mad because she apparently oh. really wanted to do this movie. Um, True. But, uh, that's fascinating. Well, you know, the, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it is funny how, I mean, I think she's great. Uh, yeah. She's one of the great uh, unsung actors of the, of the eighties. Yeah. Color um, of money. Kind of oh my the, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And this is one of the best parts she had, I think. Yeah. Um, it's one also one of the few films that is actually about, um, you know, where, where I think a female lawyer is the protagonist. True. You know? Yeah. Um. So anyway, uh, but but yeah, I mean, I, you mentioned Michael Apted's documentary work. I, I always thought that as a, you know, his narrative films, while they don't particularly have much of a through line, I think they do have a certain sense of, I think he really knew what to do with close-ups um, in part yeah. because he kind of understood from just like having, because the, I mean, the, 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 the seven up documentaries are so much about interviews, right? They I are. Mean, yep. Um, and I think that he kind of understood people, you know, in close up, like he kind of understood how people's faces work and, mm-hmm. um, and his films I've always noticed have a real sense of, you know, humanity to them. Um, yes. You know, just, just visually like he, he, he gives people their space to kind of express themselves, which mm-hmm. I think is why he was a good director of actors. Very much. I was actually thinking of revisiting this one because he'd recently passed away like a couple yeah. months ago. That's probably, yeah. So it was a good idea of you to select this one this time. <laughs> but class action, we have our daddy issues and we're moving right into that again. So speaking of daddy issues, next up we have Aaron Sorkin who adapted his own 1989 play, A Few Good Men for the Screen and Rob Reiner's smash 1992 hit of the same name. 
the film, which starred a veritable who's who of A-listers and character actors, tells the story of military lawyers at a court-martial who uncover corruption and conspiracy in the case of two Marines accused of murdering another at the Guantanamo Bay Naval Base in Cuba. Tom Cruise plays an inexperienced naval lawyer who specializes in plea bargains and staying out of court, who gets assigned to defend the accused in lieu of the far more experienced and suspicious naval investigator and lawyer, a lieutenant commander played by Demi Moore, who, along with Kevin Pollack, joins Cruise's side opposite Kevin Bacon, who is prosecuting Uncovering evidence that this Marine's death occurred as the result of a direct order or a code red, they square off against Jack Nicholson's mercurial base commander, Colonel Nathan Jessup, and the rest is legal fireworks as Cruz must learn to care and face his own daddy issues of having a crusading father whose shadow he can't get out from under. I love this one, but had not seen it in so long. So I was really glad you chose it. Tell me about your relationship to A Few Good Men. Um, well, you know, this is, uh, I mean, this is peak cruise. It really right? is, um, yes. And uh, I mean, I, I love this movie and uh, and I watch it, you know, at least once a year at this point. What's funny is when the film came out, I mean, I saw it when it came out and I liked it then too. So it's not like a didn't like it but you might remember this part of this as well but you know you know tom cruise was obviously a huge movie star yeah. um but you know such a kind of mainstream movie star and and a guy who would you know because of like the top guns and all that move you know like and, and it wasn't so much that we didn't think he could act i mean obviously he could but yeah you know like there was the sense that you know this was like pop studio fluff you know and like yeah um so you kind of had to you know if you were like a serious film buff you had to kind of hold it at a bit of like yeah it's good but it's not you know it's not uh-huh. that good and of course you know over the years you come back to this kind of thing i mean that's happened to me with a lot of tom cruise movies and a lot of like julia roberts movies or yeah. um uh where it's like somebody who was a huge star so you know, you kind of like, you didn't quite see them as the enemy, but you kind of saw them as, all right, well, that's uh, this whole other level of like Hollywood and glitz yeah. and glamour and all that. I'm going to be over here watching my, you know, French movies yeah. or whatever. <laughs> um, you know, my French movies with real actors like Catherine Deneuve, you know, um, <laughs> but, um, you know, no stars there. Um, but, uh, but, you know, like over the years, you watch, I mean, A Few Good Men is just like, you know, one of the one of your one of those great meals that you have that you just have to yeah. occasionally go back to the same restaurant and have it again. Um, I hate I hate I, I actually hate food metaphors when talking about movies, but occasionally they're irresistible. <laughs> they come in handy. Uh, yeah. yeah. But um, but I but I also love how this film is. I mean, it's a it's it's not just Pete Cruz, but it's a classic Cruz character. Like his characters really always is. had these issues. Yeah, and I, I yeah. I've, I've never read or I never saw the you know the original play, and I haven't read the original text, so I don't know how much uh, you know how different the film is. Um, but you know the the daddy issues thing is a is a is a Cruz thing. In it really is. Yep. and it's something that he often added. Um, like the, there's a great. Um, 
It's a great Rolling Stone interview with Cruz from, I think, 1986. Uh, I think I recently cited this on another podcast, but it's from 1986, um, the year year of Top Gun, basically, um, where he talks about how... um, you know, he and his team actually like took the script for Top, for Top Gun and kind of changed it. And, mm-hmm. you know, like his star persona was partly crafted by him. Um, and so when I hear of something like A Few Good Men, which is something that existed in another version and in a different thing before mm-hmm. it became a cruise vehicle, I'm always curious, like, did did he yeah. fiddle with it at all? I don't know. You know, by this point, he's obviously huge enough that he could. Um, I know. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 just an absolutely I mean, delightful isn't the word. Terrible things happen to people in it. But um, but it is. It, I also love how, you know, that classic, you know, the, the classic standoff between yes, Cruz and Nicholson at the end where, you know, Nicholson is obviously doing his thing um, and just, you know, just, you know, firing on all cylinders and has, you know, stolen everybody else's cylinders and is firing on them too. Um, But Cruz is matching him in energy, right? I mean, that scene doesn't, as great as Nicholson is, that scene doesn't become the iconic scene it is without Cruz yelling, I want the truth. And I have this image in my mind. It's, it's, it's not a, this is not an actual thing that happened, but I do have this image in my mind of like somewhere Stanley Kubrick is like watching this movie and he has like (laughs) the script of eyes wide shut in his hands and it's got, you know, eyes wide shut starring Jack Nicholson. And he sees the scene and he like crosses it. Like, it's like, there's like a torch being passed. Right. Because after this, I feel like Cruz really becomes a, a not a not a bigger actor in terms of like name recognition, but he becomes a much broader actor. Like he's he has I mean, he's always, you know, he, he's always he, he's been very good and he gives some of his best performances before this movie. But after this movie, he has this weird kind of broadness and theatricality in a good way mm-hmm. that maybe he didn't before like after like he can't do magnolia if he's never done a, this a few good men you know he can't do yeah jerry, jerry Maguire, Maguire if he has without done having this. done this you know yep. like i feel like this is a, that this this movie and maybe even that scene is kind of where tom cruise's there's like a, the fulcrum on which his career turns and he becomes kind of like the the bigger kind of broader tom cruise who can actually kind of go for broke with a performance. Um, Yeah. But yeah. That's interesting. You bring that up because if you do look at his personas, like starting with, again, link to Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, color of money, his character there and kind of a passing of the torch again, link to Paul Newman, look at us. This is great. And then we go to, you know, rain man or born on the 4th of July. And he's kind of leading into, he needed to become a superstar which he was at that point, but without being a superstar, he can't match Jack Nicholson at that level. But then this Cruz persona of there being a chip on his shoulder or something he is trying to put in his rear view or live up to in his life is something that we see again and again in his characters. And so that is interesting when you were bringing that up, I was like, wow, because yeah, 
Jerry Maguire, especially his stuff with his father in that. That's perfect. And you brought up um, the, the original play. I have not read it either. But what I did read was William Goldman did a rewrite on A Few Good Men. And Sorkin liked it enough that he went back and made changes from this script <laughs> into the play. And so it's like, I would love to read the original Sorkin play and then see what he did and how he changed it. And I think that would be fascinating. Yeah. Interesting. This is the whole Aaron Sorkin story I find fascinating. I, yeah, I you know, I, I've, I've, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I've never actually watched any of his shows. Like I was not a West Wing watcher. I, I was never. Um, you made me feel better. I, I like tuned in too late. And so I thought I missed too much. So I never watched. I need yeah. to. I did watch the newsroom though, but yeah. I did not. I heard it was not good. Although part of me thinks, you know, if I watched it, I, I, I'd be that guy who actually like enjoys the show. So maybe I that's why I shouldn't watch it. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I liked so, it. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like that premise that setup plus Aaron Sorkin yes I'm sure it can get sanctimonious but I'm oh, also, yeah. I also keep thinking to myself I mean some of it's got to be good like it's, I can't imagine that he screwed it all up you know no. um <laughs> but uh, or like uh it was it Studio 60 on the Sunset Street I, I, yeah. I didn't watch that um I just haven't seen his the, the, you know it's it's weird like I know him primarily I've never seen any of his plays so I know him primarily as a screenwriter for films um and that trajectory is is very interesting to me, uh, mm -hmm. and by and large, very good movies. You know, um, yeah. like the the ups and downs of like the the TV stuff that he's done isn't isn't quite there. Um, but yeah, no, I, I I I am curious to dig up a copy of the original text of A Few Good Men and see how how it was changed. I mean, it makes sense that someone like William Golden makes sense that somebody got their paws on it before yeah. it became a movie. <laughs> yeah, it is so quotable, too. It's funny, everybody goes with the you can't handle the truth. But in my house, because my brother was a huge Tom Cruise person, and we would watch this movie all the time. So <laughs> my whole thing growing up in the 90s was my brother and I, you're a lousy fucking softball player, Jack, for some reason. <laughs> Anytime anyone brings up this movie, that's the line <laughs> I go to right away. But then other people are like, you know, the intergalactically stupid or whatever that line was. There's there's so many. And the yeah. hits just keep on coming. I mean, it's a great yeah, script. Uh, and it's uh, oh, no, it's 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 great. I mean, there's there's it is very quotable. Um, I mean, you know, I, I mean, it's a movie that quotes itself. Right. I mean, you know, when yeah. when when when. when Tom Cruise himself does the line, does Jack Nicholson's line from earlier in the movie. Um, you know, I, I, I eat breakfast, Crystal. you know, you know, I, I eat breakfast 100 yards from 4,000 <laughs> Cubans trained to kill me. Kill me. Um, you know, so so like the movie itself is quoting itself, which is, you know, which is yeah, a sign ballsy, of confidence. Yeah. The, the movie knows that it is a quotable movie so much yes. so that it can't wait. Like it can't even wait for the credits to roll. It's already starting to quote itself. Um, but um, but yeah, no. Or the, I mean, the the line I, I will always quote is, you know, you know, you you want me on that wall. You need me on that wall, <laughs> which is yeah. applicable to so many situations. Um, you know, or uh, I mean, also the you know officer on deck. You know, like the scene where where they salute him at the end, which apparently. Uh, is inaccurate because uh, I guess Marines oh, really? actually are not allowed to quote uh, are, are not allowed to salute indoors. 
Um, oh, interesting. A friend of mine once told me that. I don't know if that's actually true or not, but a friend of mine uh, told me that. So I thought that was I interesting. Um, but yeah, no, it's filled with it's filled with just great, great, great moments. And yeah, I mean, I just you know, every time I watch it, I'm like, why don't I just watch this movie? <laughs> instead of all the other like why don't I just watch this movie over and over I know you know you love it and Rob Reiner what a run I just had to double yeah. check yeah we had Stand By Me The Princess Bride Harry Met Sally Misery A Few Good Men he botched it right after this with North unfortunately but yeah. you know but what a run wow what did you miss the, the, the spinal tap <laughs> like you know I mean, it yeah, goes back to Spinal yeah, Tap. I know. Um, We're just going to ignore the sure yeah. thing, but Spinal yeah. Tap. And then American President, which reteamed him with Sorkin. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it is it is actually, I have often wanted to, one of my dream interviews is actually Rob Reiner. I've never done, I mean, I'm not, it's not like he's hard to get. I imagine I could probably get him, but, you know, you're always waiting for the right moment because I am, I am curious. I mean, he, he has, a great run. I mean, it is, it is one of the supernaturally great runs in film history. Yeah. And it's not just, you know, oh, he gets a good script or whatever. Like there is something about Rob Reiner's ability to Very much. do just what needs to be done with these. And it's, and sometimes it is, I mean, look, he is working with great screenwriters and he's working with William Goldman, who we just mentioned. And it's interesting that William Goldman touched because, you know, he also, you know, he and Rob Reiner have a, a relationship. Um, and, um, but I do think that there is, you know, and I haven't sat down and, I mean, I've watched all these movies and watched them multiple times, um, but there is something, you know, there's gotta be something, um, mm -hmm. like uh, Rob Reiner was not, you know, I mean, he wasn't a glossy hack. Maybe he wasn't the greatest director ever, but I, there is something about his work that, yeah. um, that is, you know, I mean, and I mean, Stand by Me, The Princess Bride, Spinal Tap, Few Good Men. You know those four oh, movies are so different, yeah. Right, and they're all wonderful, yeah. and um, and that does not speak to the fact that he does not have a core. That speaks to the fact that he is incredibly versatile. Um, yes, and I think that's I think that's very special. Um, very and some much. of the later films are are not terrible either. I mean, I, no. you know, he did. He did miss a step later, and their last couple of movies I don't think I've watched even, uh, which mm -hmm. I, I should. I, I've heard they're not very good. You know, they might not yeah, be. Um, but you know, he's earned he's earned the respect to you know. I, I should just watch whatever he makes. Yeah, I should too. <laughs> More credit to Rob Reiner. Well, next we have our first of two John Grisham movies. Although I'm sure we'll reference the others. <laughs> Returning to the conspiratorial brilliance of his films like Clute, The Parallax View, All the President's Men, Presumed Innocent, and even the campy but fun Rollover. Director Alan J. Pakula tackled the first book that made me stay up all night reading it, John Grisham's The Pelican Brief released one year after the novel. In 1993, the film stars Julia Roberts as a 24-year-old Tulane law student who puts on her sleuthing hat and figures out the likely suspect behind the murders of two very different Supreme Court justices. Writing a brief, she passes it along to her alcoholic but bright and charismatic professor boyfriend, Sam Shepard, 
who in turn shares it with an FBI lawyer friend, John Hurd. And before long, her life is in danger and more people wind up dead. Joining forces with a Washington reporter played by Denzel Washington, they fight to stay alive and connect the dots behind her brief that go all the way to the White House, co-starring a brilliantly eerie and menacing Stanley Tucci along with Tony Goldwyn, Robert Culp, Hume Cronin, and John Lithgow. I've always loved this one, and I know our pal Blake Howard, shout out to Blake, agrees. So what are your thoughts on the Pelican Brief? Um, I, I, I love this one, too. You know, it's it, somewhat similar to A Few Good Men, though. It is a film that I've, I've come to appreciate more and more over the years. Um, yeah. You know, the Grisham books... I, you know, I had one summer when I just like tore my way through every Christian book I yeah. I, I could find. Um, and, and this was one of them. I don't remember the book very well. Um, so I'd be curious, you know, if you remember it, I'd be curious how, how different the film is uh, from the book, but in watching it again, I, 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 I've really, um, I've really come to appreciate what, what Pakula brought to it um, because it is very, um, you know, as you know as as big and poppy as it is it's it's a very somber movie it's a very it intimate is. movie yeah um and and you know he does interesting things cinematically you know the, the way he uses um bird's eye views and the way he uses long shots so that you know the characters are often tiny in the frame you know it feels like a film actually made for a big screen um so part of me also really wants to see this on a big screen again um oh, no yeah it's a, you know, and, and I think it's, I think it's a, I think it's a, it's just a remarkably well-made film. And, and I think in many ways is dated better than, you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the firm, um, which, you know, Tom Cruise, uh, but, but, you know, <laughs> I, I, I should probably watch it again, but I've never been a big fan of the firm. This one, you know, is, was one of the better Grisham adaptations for me. Um, and, uh, you know, the, uh, I, I, I've also over the years come to gain a better appreciation for Julia Roberts's performance in the film because, um, you know, she, she plays it so quiet and which, I mean, over and over, there's so many scenes that are very dramatic, but she is playing it very quietly. There's not a lot of like, you know, yelling mm -hmm. and bellowing and, and, um, and it's, I think it works really well because you get the sense that this is somebody who has, you know, she's not a lot. I mean, she was a law student. Yeah. Like she's, this is like, she's being thrown into the situation and she's utterly traumatized and she's still in mourning for, you know, her, her boyfriend who was killed. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, I, I'm always interested in movies where, you know, there'll be not interested, but I always, you know, I always find it funny how in so many movies, some person who is really important to the main character is killed horribly and yes. then like they feel terrible but then like one scene later it's like nothing happened these continue on their way yeah whereas this movie you get the sense watching it that she is still grieving uh, all the way through and i think that's an interesting choice um but yeah i mean how so do you do you, like the adaptation does how different is it is it that different or you know, I haven't read it since the book came out and was that 92. So I couldn't tell you for certain. Like, I remember changes that were made in the firm. And mm -hmm. I actually appreciated the changes that were made in the film. I 
I really like the firm. What's interesting about the firm and this one, something they have in common is the beginning is really excellent in the way that before we totally know what's going on, um, the firm is better about it. It takes us, I think, almost nine minutes to actually see the firm. Like mm-hmm. we're just having day a day in the life of Mitch McDear, the Tom Cruise character, and just seeing what he does with his daily jobs that he has playing basketball. Like you get to know what type of a person he is, just stuff that you wouldn't even think would probably make it into a movie today because they would be establishing so much so fast. And so I was really appreciating the firm again when I revisited it a couple of years ago, I did a long thread on breaking it down, like what they were establishing and why, but the Pelican brief, when I watched it again, I was noticing that it worked that way as well. Um, I love like the whole sequence with, Stanley Tucci is just so eerie. And I thought that was really clever too. In a way, it's like we're seeing Stanley Tucci and we're getting to appreciate him as an actor in his role as like acting various parts. Like he changes Mm -hmm. accents like on a (laughs) dime and like he gets on one call and then another call and, and, you know, he's changing out to try to make it look like he weighs more later. Like, you're almost getting a feel for what this guy can do just in his normal. Yeah. In his normal job as an actor. (laughs) So I appreciate it on that meta level as well, but yeah, I enjoy the hell out of these. I wish I remembered though, how close it was. Unfortunately, I don't. The the thing I've heard is that, you know, the film, they started production on the film before the book came out. Um, Okay. Yeah. So, um, so, but, 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 but Pakula, I think, knew that. I mean, he knew it was going to be a big hit, the book. Um, it's partly why he wanted to make the movie. But um, so, I, you know, I don't, I don't think he would have been cavalier in like changing the plot at all. I don't remember it being dramatically different. But I, one thing I was curious about is what's the relationship between them like? Because I, I remember, for some reason, I remember at the time, I could be imagining this, but I remember the film coming in for some criticism because. It, like people, people thought that maybe like the reason, you know, because Denzel was black and Julia was white, that that was the reason why they never kissed. And I can't remember if there was actually like, like that, did they ever actually get together that way in the novel? Like, I don't, I don't remember. I think so. I um, think there was like an attraction implied, but yeah. there's like an attraction applied it, it, in this it, one too. Well, that's the thing. It's very romantic. Yeah. Like, that's the thing. It's an incredibly <laughs> romantic film. Like there, they are clearly just like, yeah, they are horny for each other. I, um, I yeah. mean, there's that great scene where, I mean, it's, but it's like, it's wrapped up in the tension of the thing. So it's never just, you know, it's never um, gratuitous. It's just like, they, they've been brought together and, and, you know, there's mm-hmm. just like this incredible attraction. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah. It's an incredibly romantic movie. And that's, I think one of the other things I, I really appreciate about it is that, you know, there's just great chemistry between them. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I, 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 I mean, in terms of, um, you know, I mean, because Pakula, had, you know, obviously one of one of the great filmmakers mm-hmm. of all time, but also one of the great filmmakers of the seventies and like the paranoid dramas and, and things like that. Uh, and it's, 
like this feels actually of a piece with those in a way. It does. Yeah. yeah. I mean, at the time, it I think felt to people like a departure. I mean, he had done a, a whole bunch of movies by that point, but um, but I think like I don't think anybody actually. I think people saw this movie at the time and thought, oh, you know, it's no all the president's man um, because w- yeah. whatever. Uh, but like when you watch it now, it actually feels more like like it shares much more DNA with those films than I think people realized at, at the time. Yeah, and it's far more suspenseful. I mean. Yeah, very much. I mean, All the President's Men is a masterpiece. You know, this is a great movie. This was released. I was just looking it up when a film was released first. And it looks like The Firm came out the summer of 93. And this came out December of uh, 93. So, yeah, big year for John Grisham. It was it was it was Grisham's year. I think that was the year. I think that was I think it was that summer that I read all these all these books. Um, Probably. Yeah, for uh, me, too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Grisham is, uh, I still occasionally, um, my mom is still a huge fan of his. Um, and I will still occasionally, uh, grab a copy of one of his books and read them. And he, you know, he's, he's, he's good at what he does. I mean, he is actually yeah. like those legal thrillers. Um, I mean, I, I have an immense amount of respect for artists who find their lane and just like, nail it over and over and over again and he's done other stuff too it's not like that's all he does but that is but by and large that's what he does um and he's really good at it and the fact is you know you when you appreciate something like that it's really great to have it like i mean one of my guilty pleasures and people hate this guy but like i love dan brown thrillers right and um you know like the da vinci code and all that stuff and and it's like I mean, he, he's not a very prolific author, but every, every few years there's a Dan Brown thriller and I'm going <laughs> to read it and I'm going to love it. And if and the fact is, if one day Dan Brown is like, I'm not going to do like a Robert Landon conspiracy thriller. I'm, I'm just going to I'm going to write this like very sweet memoir or this yeah. tender love story. I'll be like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, no, I need my fix. Um, oh, Grisham is kind of like that. You know, he's 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 good at the thing that he does and it, it has its place. Um yeah 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 and this one also kind of works as a greatest hits of Pakula's career like we have a parking garage sequence <laughs> you know there's the the newsroom and so you're watching it and geeking out like oh ooh, this is the clute moment and this is that yeah moment. Yeah. So, yeah yeah it's a lot of fun yeah yeah, yeah it must have been inch- I mean you know Pakula is obviously one of those filmmakers who um I mean, his life was cut short and yeah. this wound up being like, you know, the penultimate film, I think, right? Um, I believe so, he does, yeah. He does The Devil's Own after this. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and he is obviously um, a filmmaker who, you know, revisiting his work has, has been really eye-opening because you realize there's there's more to it than just like the three or four mm-hmm. films that he was kind of known for in the 70s. And that there are actually themes and, and obsessions and stylistic traits that carry across the films and you know there was a real sensibility there um and i think that he you know i mean the films like the the directors that we're talking about at these movies i mean it's pakula it's lumet it's um you know john apted um or sorry michael apted Mm -hmm. um reiner i mean they're they're filmmakers who i think in many ways didn't necessarily get the respect they deserve 
Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're, they're filmmakers who were kind of seen as maybe at the mercy of their scripts. Mm-hmm. And, but then you watch the films and you're like, no, 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 there's, there's more to it than that. But I think also legal thrillers and like courtroom dramas and things like that. I mean, I think they were maybe sometimes seen as the domain of yes, very. those types of filmmakers, yeah. um, which is interesting because of, I think, the next, the next movie one. we're going to talk about. I right? know. It's so good to get all these 70s guys making like paranoid or legal movies or movies about information again, because that's right. really where a lot of them shined in the 70s. So this leads us right into our final film and second John Grisham adaptation, Francis Ford Coppola's woefully underrated, especially by him, 1997 film, The Rainmaker, which Coppola adapted from the titular novel with additional voiceover narration written by Michael Hare. Released the same year as Goodwill Hunting, just to put that into perspective, Matt Damon stars as a recent graduate of the University of Memphis Law School, an idealist who takes an ethically questionable job at a shady firm run by Mickey Rourke's ambulance chaser, J. Lyman Bruiser Stone. God, I love those Southern names of Grisham's. <laughs> He's taken under the wing of the highly experienced six-time bar flunky, Deck Shiflet, another good name, Danny DeVito, <laughs> and soon finds himself suing an insurance company on behalf of a dying 22-year-old leukemia patient whose life-saving treatment claim has been denied. Also getting involved with a young, beautiful, battered wife, played by Claire Danes, Damon's Rudy Baylor is a small fish swimming among many sharks, but he has justice and being in the right on his side. Co-starring Mary Kay Place, John Voight, and Danny Glover, it is a great courtroom film, more legally minded than the largely suspense-driven Pelican Brief, but very compelling. What is your take on this one? Um, I, I think it's terrific. Uh, yeah. and it is interesting as, as I was saying, um, you know, all these directors who didn't necessarily have an auteur profile, um, made these movies and then Coppola makes one, True. which is interesting because Coppola is like the ultimate auteur, but yes. this is Coppola in his work for higher period. So this yep. is actually kind of like Coppola aspiring to be, more of a of a Lumet? of a Lumet or a or, or, or a Pakula. Um so it's it's weird. It's like it it kind of fits. Um yeah I mean I think it, it woefully underrated. I remember liking it a lot at the time. It actually you know it was a modest hit but um but it was I mean Coppola didn't make another movie for a while after this. Um mm-hmm. and then and then I mean but this was I think you know he made a number of films basically to kind of win himself the financial freedom to just be able to make his own movies. And after yes. this, he does that. Um, and, you know, and he, he does, you know, he does youth without youth and then um, Tetro. Tetro and then yeah. Twixt, but he, um, you know, in, in many ways he makes this his own. I mean, it's not the best Grisham adaptation, but in part because it's not necessarily the best Grisham story, like in no. terms of, in terms of the, it's it's one of the less Grishamy stories, maybe, yeah. um, because it's not, you know, it's not a pulse pounding legal drama. It's actually uh, it's very human. What I love about it, it's probably I mean all these films are very human. I think, but this is probably the most human of them. Like mm-hmm. it has a real kind of affection for this kind of tapestry of characters that it's presenting. I mean, there is a courtroom. There is a there is a court case um, mm-hmm. that is 
central thing of the movie but there's so much more happening around the two you know with claire danes and you know all the stuff with um teresa wright you know um so i think there's a there's a richness and there's kind of a um a diffuse quality to this film that feels very very special um and i think you know coppola brings these elements to it that 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 are very him but Mm -hmm. are maybe understated i mean uh, you know when when people think of Coppola, they think of obviously Godfather and Apocalypse Now and all that. But um, you know, he's very he's great at creating milieu, right? Which yeah. is why those movies are so great. But there's this one shot, um, you know, relatively early on when um, after I think, you know, when Danny DeVito is first introducing, um, or he's just been introduced to Danny DeVito. Matt Damon has been introduced to Danny DeVito. And he's just showing him around the office. And then they step out. They step out the door out into the parking yes. lot of this like strip mall. And, you know, you, you know, but, but the, like it just the camera kind of takes in this whole, it's not a showy scene at all. No. But the camera takes in this strip mall. Mm-hmm. And you really get a sense right then of like, what is going on here yeah. and who these people are and and what they're doing and like that's coppola like i love that's yeah. that's why i love coppola is that he can kind of you know he he'll, he'll give you the other stuff he'll give you the story and he'll give you the characters and those are he's always very good with that stuff but then there'll be some moment like that where you just kind of see where these people are and you're just like all right i get it now like now yeah. i'm in, now i'm in now i'm in that world yeah um, he grounds you in it yep uh-huh. yeah um yeah. so yeah no i mean but uh i mean as as kind of um i think you're the bigger gershom expert than i am but like <laughs> what are you what are your thoughts on this as part of the the gershom corpus <laughs> well i love the premise nailing you know no bigger thrill than nothing more thrilling i think is what danny devito says than nailing right. in a, an insurance company and so true especially medical insurance i love that I also enjoy how it's sort of the Coppola company of players, basically, Mm -hmm. Mickey Rourke, Roy Scheider, uh, Dean Stockwell. You've got all these people like Mary Kay Place that you wouldn't maybe normally get, especially in mid-90s, late-90s. These aren't people you're going to see in movies that much anymore. So I was like, oh, there's Roy Scheider and especially Mickey Rourke. And so it was kind of cool to see how he uses them and how he knows what they can bring to a certain character. Danny Glover is amazing. Um, and when he takes over the case as the judge, I, I die laughing <laughs> in that first scene where he's like, you know, coming right down on John Voight and about the case that he, he lied about fast tracking. There's this whole exchange and it's just so good. And you can just see Matt Damon kind of taking it in almost as a actor. He, he'd done some things, but like just mm-hmm. taking in the whole, like, wow, look at these guys go and their rapport. And I, I love it for that. You brought up um, the fact that this is the first auteur of the era. And this week on Twitter, I noticed that you and Jason Bailey and a few other people were talking about the gingerbread man, which oh, yeah. is, not one of the Grisham novels. It was like a manuscript or a script he had written yeah. and then discarded or something. That was Robert Altman, who's the other auteur yeah. taking a shot at Grisham or Grisham Ease. 
And I actually rewatched that one um, because of that exchange. I was like, you know, that mm-hmm. is a good movie and I have it laying around here somewhere. And so I dug it up and I rewatched it. And yeah, it's kind of cool to see all of these old 70s guys and what they can bring to it and what they do. And yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a great, um, yeah, I actually, I, I love Ginger Red Man. And, you know, I saw Ginger Red Man when it, when it came out, I saw it like opening night and I thought, I was like, this is great. This is going to be a big hit. You know? Yeah. I mean, it actually like, you know, almost ended Altman's career again. Um, yeah. And it's funny because I was like, you know, and like Kenneth Branagh gives like the greatest performance I've ever seen. Like he's so good in that movie. His yeah. Southern accent is great. Um, that movie we're not there. That's that wasn't one of our movies for this. Maybe it should have been because it really is. But it's like it's different. It is a different type of Grisham story. Yeah. Um, and but Altman like makes it Altmany. Like like he films. He does the action yep. scenes with that drifting Moving camera. Yeah. Altman camera, which is like yes. why. Um, yeah. But I think it works really well. Um, uh, yeah, and I, I I love that movie. I, I haven't rewatched it in a couple of years. I, I also have the DVD lying around here. Um, I really should revisit it. But um, but yeah, no, it is interesting. I mean, yeah, it is. It is. You're right. Like the, all these seventies guys coming in. I love I love your observation though with the Rainmaker about um, the Coppola company. It yeah. is very much like getting the gang back together for one night. Even Michael Hare, who's the guy, who, you know, he wrote the yes. voiceover for Apocalypse Now. You know, like, <laughs> he brings him in to write a, you know, to write the voiceover for a John Grisham story. And the voiceover um, is so good. Yeah. 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 I don't. Yeah. It, it, it. Yeah. It is very good. Like it is actually. You know, it's like very poetic um, mm-hmm. voiceover. And um, no, I, I love how uh, you know it is very much. And that's what, but but that's what's great about. It. I mean, he does that too with. Um, I mean, he does that with Godfather Three, which is filled with, mm-hmm. you know, old, you know, Italian actors and you know, familiar faces from European cinema and stuff. Like he loves that. You know, he it's like almost like he uses these people like character actors. Like he, he yeah, he knows that we are going to bring a certain amount of, even though we're not necessarily envisioning, like when Roy Scheider shows up. Yeah. It's not like, as showy, but yeah. you know what he's going to do. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And it's not like, I mean, it's, Roy Scheider is a real actor who plays different parts. It's not like we're like, oh, yeah, this is the guy <laughs> from all that jazz. But you're watching and you're like, oh, yeah, here yep. it comes. Like, here comes the Roy Scheider scene. And it's great. Like, you know, you're you know, you, you, your, your heart starts to race. You're like, okay, yeah, you know, yes. like we're going to see Roy Scheider do his thing. And yeah. even, I mean, John Voight is great in that movie. Oh, my gosh. Um, so good. Yeah. 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 Um, no, it's, uh, it's, it's, I mean, there's some great little performances in there that. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. uh, Underrated perhaps because the story itself is not like pulse pounding, you know, Mm -hmm. dramatic, but, but like I said, I I find it a a very human movie and I love the fact that, you know, the, um, you know, the outrage at the heart of the case, even though, you know, there are, I mean, obviously this, this, you know, this, this young man, you know, dies, but, but the outrage mm-hmm. at the heart of the case is not, um, you know, it's not even like a matter of law so much as just how cruel they were in their responses yes. to her. Yeah. Like that's what kind of, that's what it's built on, yeah. um, which is an interesting thing to build a, a legal case on. Right. Um, yeah. And I think that that's, there's something very uh, moving about 
that premise. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, no, it's a it's a it's a delightful movie. Yeah, yeah, you're so right, though. It's the decision to do right or to treat each other with kindness, which is also paid off in the Claire Danes storyline with her abusive ex and how Rudy is the one that's trying to, you know, show her kindness and get her out of there. And so it's just, what do you do for your fellow man? Which, which is, you know, at the heart of most drama, but it's cool that that was used for a legal thriller, basically. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I do hope that this is one of those films that gets rediscovered. I mean, you know, Coppola has this period. Um, I mean, when I interviewed him, he said, I, I, I was never back. I was always, you know, critics were always kind of on my case. Yeah. But uh, I do think that there is this, the 90s period of Coppola's resurgence, which, I mean, they, you know, they, he arguably never goes away because like in the 80s, he makes a number of films that are really terrific, um, but yeah. but are kind of seen as in the wake of, you know, how big he was in the 70s, there's sort of seen as lesser, um, mm-hmm. which I don't think is fair. But then in the yeah. 90s, you know, he carves out some power for himself because, I mean, first there's Tucker, which is which is OK, but, you know, George Lucas kind of helps him with that. And then, you know, Godfather 3 obviously wins him some cachet. And then mm-hmm. Dracula is a hit, um, yeah. you know. And then, I mean, he makes Jack, which which is kind of a, um, you know, a punchline at this Waldo. point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is the kind of punchline at this point. But then he does the Rainmaker. But, like, there, you know, he's doing excellent work here. Yeah. Um, and, you know, maybe they're not the Godfather, but, like, what the, who cares? What um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they are what they are, and they're very good. Um, Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, so. Well, this was so much fun. Yeah. Obviously, this is just a small selection of what was playing at the Multiplex back then when it comes to legal thrillers, so we probably had enough to choose from. We could have recorded multiple installments, but I thought this was a really great place to begin. Are there any other movies you want to give a shout out to or recommend people should seek out that we didn't talk about? Oh, gosh. Um, huh. Gosh, I'm dead. Put there you are on the tons spot. And <laughs> what? I said I put you on the spot. No, it's it's funny. It's uh, I, I I I have watched a bunch of things um, over the past over the past few weeks that uh, you know I, I, I it's a it's a genre I really like. Yeah. Um, you know, and then I mean there were films like like Music Box was one we actually talked about doing such a um, good movie. But yeah, but it's very hard to find it yep. seems. Um, and so I you know, decided not to do that one. Um, but. Uh, you know, I, I do think that, you know, I do think that, I mean, obviously in legal, legal dramas, courtroom dramas, you know, they, mm-hmm. it's not like they only existed in the eighties. They were around, I mean, no, anatomy no. of a murder or Great we film. mentioned yeah. a few good men or, um, you know, judgment at Nuremberg. I mean, it's not like the, these, these yeah. movies don't exist, but it is interesting. The eighties, nineties resurgence in them. I do wonder, as we talked about it earlier, but this um, the sense that the system can work, this like mm-hmm. wary optimism that the system can work, even though it's being abused constantly yep. and corporations are too powerful and, gov- you know, the government's filled with corrupt murderers and, yes. you know, there are assassins everywhere. <laughs> but um, this, you know, but like one 
you know, right. Can, yeah. <laughs> yeah. One young lawyer or one tough cookie or, or one, you know, broken alcoholic, you know, <laughs> just gets lucky. Um, can kind of do good. I mean, there is something very hopeful about that. And I wonder if the eighties and nineties kind of coming out of the seventies um, when it's not like, I mean, a lot of this hope was, I think, you know, falsely engineered, uh, but, Mm-mm. but this sense that there was this, 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 you know, the sense of optimism yeah. Um I, I wonder if that had something to do with the fact that these types of movies kind of made a comeback and then vanished yeah. again yeah. once <laughs> once we all decided everything sucked again. Um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I it's it will be interesting. Um, I mean, the success of uh, Trial of the Chicago Seven and Mangrove and a couple other things. I feel like there was one other courtroom drama uh, last year that I'm that I'm blanking on, but um, but I feel like it, there's been a bit more of it recently. Documentary time, I guess, could. It wasn't oh, yeah. a courtroom thing, but legal. Yeah. 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 Um, Interesting. Well, I really appreciated you doing this. This was so much fun, Vilga. Thank you. This was, Such I really enjoyed it. Yes. Well, you have a good rest of your day. Thanks. You too. Okay. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll do another one one day. This is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. <laughs>